Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 58, Prophecy, recorded Thursday, March 12th of 2015, with your hosts, Grant, Peter, and Katrina. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. And I'm Katrina. So we've got Katrina with us tonight from the Gameable Disney podcast. Katrina, you want to introduce yourself and your podcast and tell you why you guys are or should be internet famous? Sure. So I am Katrina of Chris and Katrina at the Gameable Disney podcast. We are going through the entirety of the animated Disney film chronology in chronological order, delving into their plot settings and characters for gaming inspiration. It is a lot of fun. We talk about the music, we talk about the settings and how you could use them for gaming if you wanted to game a particular film or story. And we're now into the early 2000s. We started all the way back in 1937 with Snow White and have gone through all of them. From the highs of the Disney Renaissance to the doldrums of the current movies. We have also got some fun bonus material. We did uh, Pirates of the Caribbean very recently. Yes. Fun. Yes. I had only one complaint about that one, which is that you did not mention Fiasco as a good gaming system. Ah. Drat, yes. I know. That's going on the Tumblr. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Which is one of the places you can find us. The Gameable Disney Podcast, or just a gameabledisneypodcast.tumblr.com that has all of our previous episodes and fun supplemental material. You can also find us on iTunes. If you find us there, please take a minute to rate and review. It helps us out. It makes me happy. Also, you can email us with questions, comments, systems we forgot, at GameableDisneyPodcast at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Not at GameableDisneyPodcast. It has too many characters. Much like a certain film we recently reviewed. So you'll find us at GameablePodcast. We watched Home on the Range. Oh. Uh, <laughs> too many characters? <laughs> too... Okay. Every character on that farm had a name. Including Ollie the Duck. Who I think has one line. And does a weird dance. And uh, there's a pig with a name, three individual piglets who have different, like, voice acting credits, a set of four little chicks. It, it's crazy, Th- that movie. Anyway. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. it, it, th- this movie has a cast like a military thriller where you open it up and there's just this laundry list of generals down to privates in the beginning so you can keep the cast straight. Yeah. Chris did a a comparison. We looked up how many named characters there are from the first Hobbit film, the Peter Jackson film Mm -hmm. recently came out. There are 28 named characters in that first one, five of which you already know from The Lord of the Rings. Right. Home on the Range has 21 named characters. Wow. And it's only 76 minutes long. It really sounds like a group of people getting together to just get their SAG cards. It seems like, but a bunch of them were like stunt celebrity castings, like Cuba Gooding Jr., Dame uh, Judi Dench, Roseanne Barr. It's weird. It's maybe just a scheme to get name recognition that way. I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. Ah, That the actors themselves were in on. No telling. (laughs) All right. Well, listen. Um, I'll tell you right now. Gameable Disney podcast definitely has my recommendation and peter's as well yeah mine too very much so (laughs) (laughs) thank you big fans i've been working through the backlog uh at work going from episode one and 
picking up other episodes in the car as a new one comes out. So there you go. I've been bouncing around a bit more, but I'm working my way through it too. Yep. Have and either guy, either one of you listened to Black Cauldron yet? I have. No, not. that's on the list for tomorrow. Oh so. man, I think that has some of our best. How do you take something that could easily be a really boring paint by numbers campaign and make it interesting? Because that movie fails to do that. And so we yeah. really talk about how you can, okay, so you're going to meet a princess and you're going to be in a dungeon run by a dark, spooky guy with a skull face. How do you make that so you aren't bored? Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Definitely looking forward to that one. Nice. So if you're looking for the Gameable Disney podcast, and you, and should, you be, should be, <laughs> we'll, of course, link it in the show notes. But again, it's gameabledisneypodcast.tumblr.com and uh, all the other things that Katrina's mentioned. So Yes. A few other news and notes before we dive into our topic. First, just to let people know, honestly, by the time this episode drops, it might be done. We are setting up a new website. The old URL, savingthegamepodcast.org, will still work, but we also finally have a shorter one, so stgcast.org also works for anybody trying to get there. A nice, shiny new website. Your RSS feed will not change because we're not going through that mess again. That was awful. (laughs) Yeah, that was a ball of doom. It really was. We seriously lost like three quarters of our listenership. It was terrible. Oh, no. That was a while back, but it was a mess. Yeah, I think we've gotten most of them back by now, but... yeah. Anyway, it's going to be kind of a slow process. We're doing some other things that I'm not going to get into here, but hey, it's a thing. A couple of congratulations as well. Uh, first, friend of the show, Derek White, also known as the Geek Preacher. <laughs> he uh, is now officially slated for ordination in the United Methodist Church. We had him on a while back, and we were really excited to have him on because he's a great guy. He's the guy who leads uh, a lot of prayer services and full-on worship services at conventions. And is just a fantastic guy and really good preacher. So he's slated for official ordination, and we couldn't be happier. So, Derek, congratulations. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Yeah, congratulations, Derek. Uh, For those who wanted to hear his appearance with us, he he was on episode number 38 with us back in April of 2014. And then I'm going to use my uh, editorial bully pulpit here real quick and just throw out there that my wife is now officially a licensed Zumba instructor. After two years of hard work, so hooray. That was awesome. Well done. Cool. Mad props. Yep. All right. Let's get into our scripture, shall we? Yeah, okay. let's do that. All right. This is uh, Habakkuk 2, verses 2 and 3. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. And Katrina, you want to take the next one? Sure. This is Daniel chapter 5, verses 25 through 30. This is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Tekel, and Perez. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then, by order of Belshazzar, they clothed Daniel in purple with a chain of gold around his neck, and proclaimed him third in governing the kingdom. And our last scripture is 2 Peter 1, verses 16-21. to For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory— This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. 
And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So our topic tonight is one that Katrina brought to us, which is prophecy. And uh, Katrina, do you want to tell us why prophecy as a topic interests you and why it's something you wanted to talk about here? Sure. Prophecy, I I like it a lot. It's a really interesting theme and event in scripture. It's also something that has a lot of dramatic potential. It can be really inciting or really challenging and really interesting, but it's also sort of tricky. You have the potential to make characters and players feel like they don't have a say in their fate or a say in what's going to happen next, and that can that can be very dangerous. It can spell doom in a way that no prophecy ever could. If you start making players feel like their decisions don't matter, you're in trouble. But at the same time, it has such a rich tradition from classical tragedy all the way up to something like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> prophecy can be really driving and really fun. So I wanted to talk about it and think about how how you'd go about making the best use of it. Well, certainly it's something that's interleaved throughout Scripture, really. I mean, there's whole books of prophecy. Yeah, lots of them. And it, it's interesting that the form that prophecy takes in Scripture is sometimes very different from other forms of prophecy throughout antiquity and really even into the modern day. You you have this ecstatic, oracular sort of prophecy versus what is sometimes very clear prophecy talking about very specific people and places in scripture mm -hmm. and other times, sometimes a little bit of that, you know, hey, let's leave this up to interpretation kind of prophecy, you know, so that it makes sense when the time comes. That's maybe one of the interesting things about prophecy as a rule is it can be very, very clear or very, very vague. Yes. Or you can think it's very clear and it can turn out to be something different later. Right. Yeah. There's, you know, the classic case of uh, Croesus. This is getting into kind of Herodotus and historical oracular predictions. Croesus was king of Lydia and asked the oracles of Delphi and Thebes whether he should attack Persia. And the response that comes back is, if you attack, you will destroy a mighty kingdom. And he goes, oh, that's great. Oh, you meant mine. Well, I found Not that out so too late. Good. Right. <laughs> so, you know, or the uh, the really famous one where he's like, is my kingdom going to last a long time? And the Pythia, the high priestess of Apollo at Delphi, replies, Whenever a mule shall become sovereign king of the Medians, then Lydian delicate foot, flee by the stone-strewed Hermus, flee, and think not to stand fast, nor shame to be chicken-hearted. Or, in other words, when a mule is king of the Medians, then you should run and your kingdom's going to fall. Get out of Dodge, buddy. Right, and he's, of course, thinking... A mule king? Nah, not going to happen. Well, of course, Cyrus is half Mede, half Persian, and he's the king of Persia. Oh, look, he's a mule in that he's, you know, half one thing, half the other. He, of course, beats Croesus. So, yep. And if it's these nice, vague sort of predictions that could mean different things. Because, of course, you know, if Croesus had won, well, of course, no mule was king of Persia. Wordplay in prophecy, it can be deadly. So. Yes, absolutely. And symbolism in particular is one yes. of the things that makes prophecy very useful in a lot of ways because you can always reinterpret it after the fact. Yes. 
it's also really neat to get into that idea of symbology and specific references or local references versus broader references. It's uh, the thing about prophecy is the most fun you can have with it is interpreting it because it's just there's a lot of room for interpretation. That can be the the vehicle for a whole campaign is we've got some prophecy and we want to figure it out. And that can be really, really neat. Yeah. And it's maybe worth digressing just for a moment here to quickly define a difference between prophecy and divination. Yeah. yeah. Prophecy is a message that is given. You know, In the case of Scripture, God is giving these prophets a message to deliver to the Israelites or other various parties. Divination is more like it's more like an investigation that you conduct. Yeah, in a lot of ways. It's coming from inside the person who's doing the divining or at the very least they're the one who's causing it to happen in some way. They're you right. know, doing some kind of a ritual or something. Yeah, rather than getting a a direct clear message in, or a direct unclear message. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> but a, a specific message let, let us say. It's here are signs and portents that I as a diviner or oracle, am interpreting. Or in the case of certain um, gaming systems like D&D, I'm just going to straight up cast a spell and get the information that way. Well, right. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a sense of revelation within the prophetic tradition, both dramatically and especially in scripture, the idea that this comes to you from somewhere because something wants you to have it. The things like prophetic dreams are classic in mm -hmm. both scripture and dramatic writing. Uh, versus something like, I have these guts and I'm going to burn them. And when they're done being burned, the symbols will tell me what's up. There's a, there's a sense of actively seeking out this knowledge as opposed to receiving this knowledge from somebody or something out there. Well, and right. that actually brings up an interesting contrast because it seems like divination a lot of the time is knowledge that you're not supposed to have, that you go out and get. You know, it's it's yeah. <laughs> knowledge that you wouldn't normally have. And I know, like, ancient Judaism and Christianity warn against divination. You know, you're you're not supposed to go out and seek this knowledge out yourself. So prophecy is acceptable and divination is forbidden, in, in some traditions at least. Well, no, it's, even in, um, in the Old Testament, part of the accoutrement of the high priest of the Israelites is a pair of stones kept in kind of the, the chest plate that's kind of used for God to provide a source of, you know, yes or no kind of divinations. It's not so much divination is flatly wrong, but divination from the wrong source is wrong. There's a note about this in the Catechism of the Catholic Church about um, what constitutes inappropriate divination. And it's the idea that it's knowledge from some source that is not God or knowledge that is being sought out for personal gain, there's a there's an element of motive. Like, are you trying to find out this to make your own life better for out of selfishness? Are you doing this because you lack trust in God? What's the what's going on here for you? Which I thought was interesting because I, I was reviewing like, what well, I'm sure there's some notes about prophecy and divination and stuff in my catechism. Like, oh yeah, here's some notes. Everyone has the potential to be prophetic. Anyone can be spoken to by God. But nobody should be going out and trying to, like, find some secret way to get at knowledge that is God's alone to deal out. Yeah, not, not a whole lot to add, but that's, that's good. 
Yeah. And, and one other interesting thing about prophecy is that prophecy is necessarily, at least in the Christian tradition, a form of witnessing. Yes, that's very true and important. So I think we've kind of defined it pretty clearly, and we're going to kind of keep coming back around to what kind of form does prophecy potentially have and that sort of thing as we talk about it. But let's move on a bit and talk about the storytelling purposes that you can put prophecy to. There's a lot of fiction out there and a lot of stories that have prophecy as an important element. So how do we take all of those stories and refine them into something that works at the table? Well, prophecy definitely enriches a world, especially religions that are within it. Like you have, you have the potential if you have something like D&D or Pathfinder or something more esoteric or specific in fate or wherever you are to make it active and to kind of make it alive in a way that is sometimes challenging. If you have someone who's prophesying in the world, and people who have opinions about it, that's suddenly a much more real religion and a much more real community of believers in that world, which sure. is great. Yeah, it can change um, kind of the whole arc of your campaign, especially if your players uh, latch onto it or it's a key part of your setting lore. If you've got this prophecy that you need to help come true or that you don't want to come true or it's a warning or you're trying to figure out how accurate it is, that can provide the backbone for an entire campaign-spanning plot. Oh, yeah. Prophecy doesn't necessarily have to be true in order to dramatically shape a story. No, I, I think a lot of times we have an assumption in fantasy and science fiction literature that, well, it's a prophecy and the author mentions it. It must be true. Yeah, that is our habit. And it, it certainly doesn't have to be. Yeah. Or it doesn't have to be like right now. Maybe it'll be true 2,000 years from now, but you know about it, and it's not as big of a deal as you think. Right. Or maybe um, th this was done well in Mistborn. Maybe you know they thought it was fulfilled 2,000 years ago, and it hasn't been yet. Right. Could very well be the case. But you know, people will act on something they believe that strongly in, regardless of whether or not it's actually applied the right way or even true at all. You know, you could have the rantings of a crazy person who get picked up as prophecy. You could have a perfectly valid prophecy that is largely ignored or mm -hmm. is completely misunderstood, like you said, with the, the Mistborn example. So it doesn't have to be here is how this prophecy is laid out and this is what's going to happen in my game. Yeah. There's a lot of flexibility there. And it's it's going to be important to maintain that flexibility because you don't want it to become the... It's good to have it for a backbone, but you don't want it to be the railroad of doom. You don't want it to be, and now everything that's going to happen is set. Oh, yeah. Having that flexibility built into it is really valuable because that sort of helps make it a challenge and an invitation to the players as opposed to here I am the GM and my word is the law. Yeah. That I, yeah, it can too much. turn into a straitjacket if you aren't careful. Yeah, participation, mm -hmm. I think, was the key word there. You need to invite players to take part in it, or if you're a player, bring it to the table yourself and say, hey, here's a cool thing that we could incorporate, rather than, right, here's how my story is going to go. I've laid it yeah. all out for you, now you just need to play your part. Mm -hmm. That's not fun, and I guarantee that that's the main reason people shy away from including prophecy in their game, or it's the main frustration players have in any game where prophecy is involved, because it really feels like the GM is saying, nope, this is how my story is going to go, and you can't do anything about it. Sorry. Yeah. 
one other thing that I think we should hit on before we go here. In a science fiction-y type of story, time travel can be a source of kind of a pseudo-prophecy. Hmm. When time travelers come back and say, hey, this will happen if you don't X, Y, right. or Z. I mean, the whole Terminator franchise is kind of based on that. Oh, sure. Yeah. And you see it. Comics actually have this a lot, right? Yeah. The, oh, yeah. The time traveling superhero from the future is like, hey, guys, um, this is going to happen, and my world is terrible, so we need to fix that. Yeah. Because you don't want your world to become my world. <laughs> right. I mean, even Dragon Ball Z did that. Back it's, to the future. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I had never thought of Doc as a prophet before. And it's kind of, but he's even got the hair for it. Oh, yeah, that's true. But yeah, right at the end of the first movie, it's, you know, it's your son, Marty. You know, mm -hmm. or it's your kids. Yeah. But you've got to do something about your kids. So, yeah, then you have those warnings. And of course, the whole point is that that prophecy needs to be broken, right? Yes. You've got to fight it. Mm -hmm. What happens then? And that's kind of the thing is, I think a lot of the times the assumption in any game in involving prophecy is that the prophecy directly applies to the player characters and is going to make them do something. Yeah. And th there's some huge assumptions in that statement, like it applies to the player characters or it's inalterable. Mm -hmm. If you loosen any one of those restrictions, then all of a sudden it becomes a much more valuable tool for putting into your game and shaping your game in all sorts of good ways. Well, and prophecy as a warning is something that you see in Scripture. I mean, a lot of the Old oh, Testament yeah. prophets were like, all right, seriously, folks, straighten your stuff out because God is not happy and I don't blame him. Right. It's, mm -hmm. you know, you need to change or this will happen. And then this is how you change to get back on track. Right. One of the things we had in sort of notes on this show that I think could be really interesting is um, the idea of prophecy guiding antagonists as opposed to our protagonists, mm -hmm. because then you could almost have prophecy as a, almost a MacGuffin or treasure. Like, if you can understand the prophecy, which is guiding your antagonists, then you can understand them and you can kind of get one step ahead. It's almost like finding the plan or something. And that, I think, would be really interesting because you could have prophecy in your world without having your players know what the prophecy is exactly. They just know that there's somebody who is working within it or trying to bring it about, and that's who they're contesting with. And that would be an interesting use of prophecy. Yeah. One of my favorite fantasy series is The Bulgarian and the Malarian by David Eddings. And in those, you actually have two sets of competing prophecies. And I'm going to spoil this because it's like a 50-year-old series at this point. It's It's really <laughs> old. Fantastic still. So skip ahead like 30 seconds if you haven't read it. But part of the point of the series is that you have these two prophecies that describe mostly the same things, but want different outcomes. Basically, they're both kind of true until one of them is disproven. If one of them breaks, the other one wins. And they're sort of tied to these cosmic forces. Which I'm not going to get into, but if you had that, where you had a prophecy that the players were involved in, and then one guiding the antagonists. It's kind of a race. Well, yeah, it's a race, but it's also agency, because then it's, I can try and, you know, stick with this one, or I can try and disprove this other one. What do I do? Mm -hmm. Well, and a fantastic twist to throw in towards the end of the campaign is, what if you actually need to be, what if you essentially need to switch prophecies for your stuff to be going correctly yeah. at the end of the game you know what if they're following the one that you should be following and vice versa or 
There's room for some good dramatic twist or irony there. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or, you know, hey, both of these are going to come to a head. So I've actually got to help my opponent fulfill theirs so that we can have the final showdown. You know, mm-hmm. all sorts of possibilities that come up in there. Uh, but I, I particularly like the idea of the bad guy following his own prophecy, like whoever your antagonist is. Mm-hmm. Because then, like you said, discovering the prophecy is a win for the players right there. Yeah. You know, discovering it and then interpreting it and then defeating it. That's three victories in one. Mm-hmm. You're really set there. And that kind of brings up the question of leaving room for players, which is, I think, what we're all kind of aiming at here. Well, and the nice yes. thing about all of those is none of them necessarily takes your villain out of play. Right. True. You don't have to defeat or murderize your villain to get ahead of them, which is always good. Yeah. And in some ways, it makes the villain a little more sympathetic. This is not necessarily someone doing this for their own personal gain. Maybe it is. You know, they're thinking, well, I'm going to be the hero of legend. And in doing so, they're being incredibly selfish or whatever. But in a way, you know, somebody who's doing what they think is right is always a little more enticing as a villain because it makes a sympathetic character. So, yeah, I mean, as a sympathetic character, I think that it leaves a lot of room for players to interact with them because it's not the big bad guy of doom. Well, and true. that also kind of brings up if your villain is a little more humanized and is genuinely trying to do the right thing, that opens you up for like an assisted redemption story instead of just yeah. your straightforward, you know, pistols at dawn kind of showdown, which can yeah. also be a lot more interesting and dramatic. Sure. You know, oh, hey, it turns out that this passage and the prophecy we're following uh, we'd been interpreting it wrong, and our villain is actually one of the guys who helps us fulfill the prophecy. Yeah, there's definitely room for all kinds of neat graying there, or potentially making a villain sympathetic. And there's also room for them to be very dark gray and still be completely at odds or doing things that the players or characters think are wrong, mm-hmm. but have a motivation that isn't entirely within them. And It lets you get wins against that villain before defeating them. And it can also help to avoid one of the problems you have when you have like an evil organization or some shadowy cabal is feeling like you've actually gained ground against them. There's that sense of they're too amorphous. And so having something that's a real tool for them, like a prophecy or important lore or just mileage, little steps you can take towards actually defeating them. And having to be something so unusual and dramatic, like a prophecy that, that that has been important to them, could be a real interesting thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that goes back to the old saw of knowledge being power. Mm-hmm. You may not be able to take this organization on head on. You know, they may be too entrenched in society. But if you can figure out what's making them tick, well, all of a sudden the game changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. All right. So what else makes a good prophecy in a game? Well, there's some important questions to answer about it, like who is going to make the prophecy? Where is it coming from? And if you're going to go ahead and let PCs make prophecies, then you need to have some mechanical sense of how it's going to work, how much it can alter the setting or plot or something like that. I think it could be really empowering and interesting. And in some systems, it would work. Like uh, the system for Mouse Guard has seasons. And mm-hmm. at the end of season, there's a player's turn where they get to work on some personal project. And so if there was a way to sort of be the voice for the next harvest, if you had invested in that over the season or make an important prediction about a relationship or a change in the political climate, then doing that at the end of kind of a mini arc or a season could be really neat. Or potentially with um, something like story points, 
which um, the Doctor Who setting, actually speaking of time travel, it makes really great use of story points to just do cool dramatic things. Okay. And that might, you might be able to hack something like that to let PCs make prophecies about what's happening around the particular mystery or monster of the week within that world, which would be interesting. Yeah. I think the big assumption here is that we're making these prophetic additions to the game during the game, right? This mm-hmm. is after the game has started. Obviously, before the game starts, backstory is, you know, yeah. it's freeform. Uh, let me introduce this prophecy. That seems like a cool idea. It seems like fun. I'm a, I'm a hero of legend or I'm fated to die in combat. I mean, there's all sorts of things you can introduce that way. And I think it's much easier to do, obviously, in backstory because you're setting up everything and there aren't really rules for that in almost all cases. Definitely. I had a character with something like that for a Pathfinder game and it was really fun. She was a Gripply and I found out about Heart Tongue Frogs, which are adorable and you should totally look them up. I decided to swipe their distinctive mark and say that within her group of Gripply, that sort of marked her to be someone important and probably a spellcaster or speaker. Okay. And then I gave her, I said, but then her teeth grew in and she couldn't actually cast spells. So they didn't know what to make of it at this point, but she's gone on to become a very great fighter. So as, again, I got to put it in backstory where it wasn't going to be in the way. But it let that character be special, but also sort of say something about her as being a little on the outs with her tribe and her people because like you looked like you should have been this, but you're not. You're not that at all. So again, that interpretation is really fun. It's where a lot of the dramatic interest can lie. Speaking of interpretation, uh, I think there's also some room for PCs to maybe not be the ones who get the initial prophetic vision, but turn around and make it make sense. Ah, yeah. I know one of the most, I'm just going to go ahead and say dramatically interesting moments in the Old Testament is when Joseph is in prison and he's interpreting the the dreams. Mm. And the the one guy is like, well, I had this dream and, you know, what does that mean? And I have this dream and what does that mean? And he goes to the one guy and says, "Uh, I'm sorry, but you're doomed. And he goes to the other and he's like, you're going to be fine. You know, you'll actually get a place of honor out of this. And that results Mm -hmm. in Pharaoh calling him and it's... It's a way that he kind of moves up in the world is that he's able to interpret these prophetic dreams that other people are getting but have no way to make heads or tails of. Right. We see the same thing in Daniel. Yeah. I like that. And that lets the players have the opportunity to determine how much they trust that prophet. Where is the prophecy coming from? And that's maybe another really big point is what force is inspiring this prophecy? Yes. Is this coming straight from... God, the God of the Holy Trinity? Is this coming from a kind of God stand-in, your standard D&D-ish kind of God? Is it coming from some other weird entity? Who's making this prophecy and passing it on to a mortal prophet to reveal to everyone? And what is their goal? Yeah. Is this a really devious high-level wizard? That would be very scary yeah, and potentially very interesting. Sure. Is it something Cthulian and, you know, wrong where it's like, hey, this is kind of my weird, twisted madness vision and this is what I want to happen? Is it something, a warning? It gets back to the goal and those other questions that we addressed earlier, but you need to be able to say not just this is a prophet, but this is a prophet who's getting prophecies from something. 
Maybe the players yes. don't necessarily know what is inspiring that prophecy, but you as a GM should probably know. Yeah, GM should know for sure. And that kind of gets into how interesting NPC prophets can be. Because if you have someone in the world who is making prophecy about what's coming next and is potentially very hopeful or potentially very concerned, having the players be able to investigate and discover where this is coming from for that person can be really, really exciting and really interesting. And again, you always want that traction. You want the ability to to sink your teeth into what's going on. Yeah. I think also another important consideration is how is this prophecy getting to whoever it's getting to? Uh, we've covered yeah. dreams already, and there's that kind of the ecstatic vision, but there's any number of ways that this could be revealed to whoever it is that gets it, and you should probably give that some thought, too, as you're putting it together is, you know, how is this going to get to whomever needs to hear it? Yeah. I'm going to steal again from the Mallory and by David Eddings. There's a great case there of one of the prophets who contributes to one of the prophecies is an incredibly boring tradesman who, while writing out his ledgers, occasionally just gets moments of prophecy and just almost engages in automatic writing and writes out bits of prophecy and then picks up his ledger where he left off. Hmm, that's neat. <laughs> Someone finds it eventually, like a, a family member is like, Oh, this is weird. Well, such and such king was asking for anything that looked prophetic. I'm just going to copy all this down and send it on. You just know he discovers that in the morning after he's, you know, trying to get his stuff in line with the local taxing authorities. Like, oh, man, yeah. I got prophecy in my P&L again. I got to rewrite <laughs> right. this whole thing. And I think in his case, it's like, you know, he never even noticed it. It was a family member or something. And that's another question. Does the prophet know that they're revealing a prophecy? Do they know where it's coming from? So on and so forth. You know, how much yeah. does the prophet know? All good and fun questions, things that the GM should probably have at least a, a solid notion of, but yep. that your players could definitely discover. Right. And, of course, that gets to the other thing that we mentioned earlier, how vague a prophecy is it? Because one of the advantages of that vague sort of prophecy is that it becomes a puzzle for the players, not just for the characters, but the players get to put the pieces together themselves. And in classic GMing tradition, you say, here's some word salad. And as soon <laughs> as you guys find something that fits, boom, that's it. We're set, guys. That's uh, you figured it out. I promise. <laughs> meant it all along. Congratulations. You discovered my overarching plan. Yeah. Now <laughs> the session is over while I go and figure out the rest of my overarching plan. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, I actually had a, a GM do this in a really fun and interesting way. This was in a mage game that I played for about three years that was ridiculously overpowered. This is the one, Peter, that uh, this is the, was supposed the to prologue? go six months. Yeah. Yeah. This was a six month <laughs> prologue for a vampire game that turned into a three year campaign all on its own. Wow. Yeah, it was it was really good. It was one of the I learned a ton about GMing from that campaign playing in it. Fantastic game. But one of the key things about the game, like the key plot points was that we were dealing with the Fae. And the oh. Fae did all of their magic through song, which kind of was an excuse for us to trade music around because what we would do is or what the GM would do would be like, "All right, so here is the Fae song that this particular Fae character is singing to have this effect and basically be like, hey, I found this cool YouTube video that hits the notes that I want to hit, right? Nice. Uh, or he'd have one particular artist whose songs could be interpreted in this particular way. 
And that was kind of the the thing was he was finding songs that were close and then fitting them in the story that he wanted to tell. But at the end of this whole business with the Fae, we got a prophecy, which was another song. And it was just, here's some stuff that's going to happen. And the GM had basically been like, "Eh, this seems cool. Let me just grab this song because this seems to hit a couple of points that are close to kind of where I want to go. Throw it out there. And then you guys figure out the rest for me so that I know where the game's going. That's some smart GMing. Yeah, that's... That was fantastic. brilliant GMing, actually. Like I said, I learned a lot from that game. A lot of good stuff. And you could do the same thing with any existing prophecies, like, uh, what's his name? Nostradamus, right? We've got all these very cryptic writings of Nostradamus. If you're set, doing a game that's set in anything like the real world, just grab those and be like, so Nostradamus's prophecies, they're totally real, guys. Here's one. <laughs> As you said earlier, here's a bowl of word salad. Have fun. Right. <laughs> exactly. I swear that's what First Wave did. Do you guys remember First Wave at all? I don't. Um, no. Okay. It was a really bad sci-fi show. Uh, aliens are invading Earth, and Nostradamus predicted it. And so it's the first wave of the alien invasion. And they're all sneaking in and kind of doing the infiltrate, infiltrate, infiltrate. Yeah, they're scrolls, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're sneaking in, disguising themselves as humans, and doing evil things to be evil and prepare the world for invasion. Yada yada yada. Nefarious alien masterminds. Yeah, something like that. And you know, <laughs> the protagonist of this show basically had the prophecies of Nostradamus to guide him. I don't even know if the show used real ones or if they made them up, but it really felt like the writers had a book of Nostradamus's prophecies, picked one at random and said, so let's write a, let's write an episode about that. This one mentions ravens and rain. All right. That's, that's what we need. Um, it's raining forever in this one town and <laughs> ravens are involved. Birds, yeah. Spooky blackbirds. Or is it a symbolic bird and it's just a plane that happens to be black? Yeah. Or yeah. what? Anything so. like that. Yeah, it could have been an SR-71 blackbird for all we know. I mean, whatever, <laughs> right? But that's the the beauty of it. Here's this really gibberishy sort of prophecy. I'm going to throw it out there and then we'll just kind of see what comes of it. It gives a little bit of shape and kind of lets players look for those connections because players are great at making connections to yeah. things. Yeah. Although you do have to be a little bit careful, because going back to your music example from earlier, my wife and I have um, have had a, a difference of opinion over whether she moves through the fair as sinister or comforting at the end, when the guy sees his, his dead love and she comes in to him at night and basically is a ghost and says, you know, it still won't be long until we're married. She uh-huh. She interprets that as, you know, spooky, you're going to die soon. And I've always interpreted that as... There really is an afterlife. I still love you, and I'm still waiting for you. I think both readings stand. You could read that as, I am your dead husband, or dead soon-to-be husband, because soon you will be dead. And that can be read as spooky music, or it can be, I am waiting for you because I love you so much. There's a bit of both there, which is, like, that's how romance rolls sometimes. It's the, if you attack, you will destroy a mighty kingdom kind of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Let the players determine what it means, and if they disagree, awesome. Yeah. yeah. Good job. Well, that's kind of what I was trying to get at, is it's it's good if you can have something that can be read two different ways, and they mm-hmm. both turn out to be true at the end. Yeah. That is the way to win at having prophecy around, is to have the potential for multiple readings 
equally valid. That is a real, real solid way to do it. Mm -hmm. I was in a game where at the end of a character creation, uh, you drew a card and the GM didn't tell you anything about it. You just drew a card. And I can't remember if it was like a regular deck of cards or a tarot deck or something fancy, but it was some, some card. And then the GM just wrote it down next to their notes on the player or on their notes on the character. And I sincerely suspect that it didn't mean anything. But <laughs> what that did was everyone who had drawn a card was like, oh, what could it have meant? What does that mean? What is hanging over my character? I got this sun thing. Does that mean I'm going to go out to the desert? Does that mean, oh, hey, there's this religious group with this emblem as a sun? Should I be like, will I have an in with them? And so right. there was there was this fun little flourish on the world. And it gave the characters, and the players especially, some sense of their place in a larger world, which was really exciting, because it was going to be a short campaign. It was just a few sessions. And so having the idea that there's some little bonus thing to unlock here or find about your character in the world was really exciting. And I thought a great source for that could potentially be the Dao De Ching, because that has wonderful, interesting poetry and mm -hmm. things that could be used in that way and has been used in sort of folk divination for thousands of years and the interpretation of it for thousands of years. And so getting into something like that and just having it in character creation or something that happens during a session, like you encounter this person doing this and having it actually at your table in some physical way can be really fun. Yeah, Writing Excuses, which is a, a writing podcast that Brandon Sanderson, uh, Howard Taylor, and a couple other folks are on. They recently did an episode where they asked the I Ching for questions about writing. Oh, nice. And so they kind of did the draw stick with a number on it, read the poem, and then, okay, what is the I Ching asking us about writing? I think they're asking us about uh, when to give up on an idea, you know, different kind of things, but you could you could have that same sort of thing. And it blurs the line between divination and prophecy. Mm -hmm. But, eh, that line is going to be blurred in some cases. And roll with it. Yeah. But you said something earlier that I think is really important, which was talking about giving the players a sense of where they stand in a larger world. We've been talking about all the ways to keep the prophecy from locking in on the players and, you know, saying, you guys are the heroes of this big prophecy. But there's a reason that that is a fantasy trope. Right. Yeah. Everybody kind of wants to play the heroes of the universe. Or at least a kingdom or something. You want to feel special. You want to feel like you are achieving something. Yeah. And I think it's okay if you handle it well to say, look, here's a prophecy that says you guys are important because players will will latch on to that. It can't be the only thing. It's mm -hmm. um, sort of like what we talked about with our previous guest, Josh Jordan, when we were talking about small stakes gaming, you know, gaming for small things, scope alone does not make a game good. You know, a bad game about a small thing is still bad when you say, oh, it's about saving the world. Yeah. If you have a prophecy that locks players in and robs them of agency, the fact that they are important or their characters are important, I should say, does not salvage that. No. no. You're still you're still writing your novel as a GM. I have been in that position with uh, an unfortunate campaign that was, it was being run out of a supplemental, some supplemental material. Mm. And I had created a character and I, I liked this character. It was fun to play them, but I very rarely had a reason to be there. 
It's like, oh no. And I was trying. I was like, GM, here I am. I will work with you on motivation. Like, nope, this is how the end of the world conflict has to come and you just have to be there. To the uh, point yeah. that an NPC actually said, why are you here? It's like, your guess is as good as mine, buddy. I am uh. here because the person to my right has asked me. I am chained to the plot wagon and being dragged behind it. <laughs> yeah, yes. chained to the plot wagon. Exactly, and, and and that's where you just kind of look at the GM and go, why aren't you just writing a novel? I know. But we've all, I think, well, most of us have been in those games. Maybe Peter hasn't, but he's luckier than most of us. <laughs> Lucky duck. I, I yeah. think I actually have been in one of those. It was just a long time ago. All right, fair mm. enough. I've told that horror story on the air, I think. But yes, I still reflexively cringe at the mention of it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but um, that kind of brings up a question of if there's a prophecy involving the players, even obliquely, is that prophecy flexible or can it be fought? Is this a destiny or an absolute fate that you're going to run into? Yeah, and that is a good question, because that can make you feel like you're Oedipus or somebody in another tragedy, mm -hmm. and and that is not a good feeling. Like If there's no way around this, if I can't wiggle this at all, like, I mean, the heart of a lot of Greek tragedies is seeing someone noble suffer and then accept their fate. Like, that's sort of their triumph, is when they gracefully give in to what they cannot overcome. Right. And that is not something that people want to do in their role-playing game experience as a rule. Once in a while, maybe. It robs them of that sense of agency, yeah. Yeah. And it just, it can be a real drag to feel like you are in a tragedy or a tragic story. Right. Sometimes it's interesting, but... It works great as a con game, but yeah, not as an ongoing campaign. If you go into it at the start of the game saying, my character is doomed by this prophecy, and that's a core concept for the character. Mm -hmm. I think it's okay because oh, yeah. the player it, it owns be. that up front, right? They have that as their agency. And also, honestly, that doom is going to take place at the end of the campaign when everything is done. Every RPG that does merits and flaws has a dark fate yeah. flaw that Haunted. is an excuse to be glum and mopey and get some extra character points because that dark fate is not going to come around until the player is either done with the campaign or is tired of the character and wants it to kick in. It's a way to get out of the character if they want to, or yeah. it's some extra points for the whole campaign. There's also the possibility that that may go off in a way that the character didn't expect maybe the maybe the player does maybe the player doesn't but the character certainly mm -hmm. doesn't expect at like a climax point in the middle of the campaign and that winds up being the thing that takes you into act three i mean you know we've been talking about stuff that's open to multiple interpretations or can be interpreted incorrectly all throughout this episode i see no reason why the dark faded prophecy of some player character, even one that's worth character points as a disadvantage, has to be any different. You just have to handle it carefully, and if they're going to be cashing in those character points in some way, then either everybody has to be okay with that, or they need to get something else that makes up for the fact that they're suddenly worth more points. So maybe your dark fate is replaced by a bunch of um, social disadvantages that represent all these new responsibilities or a secret that you have to keep or some, you know, enemies that you've made or that sort of thing instead. 
This uh, reminds me of, we were talking about how this can shape an arc or help to bring an end to an arc, or with a character who's got a particular fate. Um, the first season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the finale with Prophecy Girl, it is about our protagonist facing the master who is the big bad of the season. And in the prophecy, when she faces him, she will die. And what happens in the finale, spoilers, first season of Buffy was a long time ago, guys. But if you don't yep. want to know, skip like 30 seconds ahead. She does die, but she is revived. She drowns and is revived. And so she goes through that, and we'll have a similar thing happen later in the Buffy chronology, where that incident then changes how she behaves through the entire next season, sometimes more dramatically than others. But um, there's an interesting way to kind of cheat death there, or to fulfill a prophecy while having an interesting twist on it. It's because maybe this game, you know, sort of like Buffy, we didn't know if we were going to be able to go for a season two or not. So if we weren't going to, then maybe you would have stayed dead in this conflict. But hey, I actually have a work schedule that works. We can play another another arc, okay, let's not completely kill you. Let's have something no. change, but we can keep going. And one other thing that crossed my mind is if you have a, a prophecy that says, you know, this is how things are going to go, but there's room to fight that prophecy versus free will kind of story, which mm -hmm. is automatically interesting to a lot of people, that's a place to maybe bring in some sanity and madness mechanics, depending on the game. Yeah. You know, if there's a prophecy Maybe if you are aligned with that prophecy and following it the way that it's laid out, you are more sane than somebody who's fighting it because they're essentially fighting the order and structure of the universe itself. Or it could work in the other direction. I mean, it could be a prophecy of some, you know, Cthulian madness. And by fighting that and working against it, you help keep yourself and the world more sane. Right, mm -hmm. and, and inversely, the more you know about that, the madder you are. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Eberron kind of does this. Eberron's got this draconic prophecy plot slash setting element where basically the prophecy of the whole world is sort of written out into its stones and on people and all this other stuff. And it's there mostly as a plot device for GMs who can be, you know, have a dragon come in and say, hey, so I found this little fragment of the prophecy that seems to refer to you guys. Uh, yeah, you guys are important. Hmm. It's kind of what it's there for. But it has no bearing on things from the far realms, aberrations and that sort of thing, because they're not from this universe and not supposed to be here. That's cool. Or at least that's how I remember interpreting it when I read it. Uh, it's been a while since I've read those Eberron books. But... I like the idea that if the prophecy has people who it simply doesn't apply to, maybe it can cause the whole system to break down. Or maybe they're really covered by it and you're not sure. Or vice versa. You know, maybe you're trying to bring the whole system crashing down so that you can set things right. Yeah. That reminds me, um, in a the Pathfinder game I referred to earlier, it's kind of a homebrew setting that Chris worked up where dragons are like basically the gods of the realm and they're sort of holding the world in place because the actual gods failed to finish baking the earth, basically. And hmm. so it's dragon's magical force that's sort of making the world hold together. And the dragons are dying. Because they're dying, it's kind of a, a world that's on the edge. And the magic there works through the stars. Like, uh, it's recently been sort of rediscovered by people because there's a lot of chaos as dragons fall and their realms become chaotic wastes that 
magicians and like wizards are reemerging and different things and the nobody knows exactly what it will mean for the planet if all of the dragons are gone. Mm-hmm. But as our characters in that world were sort of level, we, you know, we started out at level one in a boarding house to go and fight a cattle thief. But as we're up you, around as level, you do. level 15 now. And we recently discovered some crazy texts from early, early writings of the world. Sort of, here's how magic works in the world. Here are the charts to look at the stars. And here's how the stars have changed as the dragons have been lost or as dragons are born. And so now they're on like a mission to like rescue a baby dragon to prevent the a realm from falling, to sort of hold the world as it is. But they're not certain that's what they want to do because if the magic is tied to the stars, how much are the stars are tied to the dragons? How much do we want this to fall away? Because what they have are like realms where they're just kind of wild and the beings out there are things like orcs and monsters and they were considered sort of soulless or without the connection to the dragons and the divine but will that stay true if there are no dragons left or if you can get one of the gods to pay attention to the world again so you know it took 14 levels to get there but it it, again it has that sense of here's the big world and here's how we could try to find footholds in it and and that's still true when you're itty bitty baby level one it's just not as in your face it's it's just the world that you inhabit yeah, you're not dealing with those cosmic forces most of the time. Mm-hmm. That brings up another interesting possibility if, it, just kind of throwing out a story idea here, if you've got a prophecy that you know describes how the world works, and that prophecy is true, if you change the prophecy, does the world change? Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking that would be kind of cool with the whole um, Eberron thing with the creatures from the Far Realm not supposed to be there, and so prophecies don't account for them. You know, if yeah. all of a sudden these things from another universe, maybe even benevolent things from another universe are coming in, how many wrenches does that throw into the gears of reality and what do you do about it? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, in Eberron, they're not benevolent at no, all. Not even uh, slightly. They might think they are, but they're really not because they're horrible aberrations. And, oh, uh, man. You know, it would be ridiculous, but fun. You could play a game um, like you could be playing straight up D&D and then have something happen where... We were talking about time travelers as prophets. I've been trying to figure out how would I want to do this. You could have Doctor Who show up into your D&D game, as he mm-hmm. is wont to do, and then hand your players, like, the little mini character sheets, like, here are some new rules that apply because the universe is, now has this anomaly. And it'll apply for as long as this anomaly is here. What is it doing to the fabric of reality? You'd better look into it. That seems like that would work particularly well. Honestly, the the Numenera setting that Monty Cook came up with, that sounds like something that would drop oh, right into there happen. beautifully. Because there's so much stuff that's, you know, that was understood by somebody at some point in that setting, but isn't understood by anybody who occupies it now. And if one of those things was time travel related, which I think is actually explicitly stated in the core book that there was some of that. Well, Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden the gloves are off for that kind of thing. You know, you can have somebody from the distant past or distant future show up and say, hey, so, um, yeah, reality has these little kinks in it and uh, nobody else really seems to care. So what are you going to do about it? Because I can't do this by myself. And I'll say with like your GM hat on, it's really fun if you want to introduce something like this is something that's changing the fabric of reality. And making that real for players is handing them new mechanics or telling them, like, this is a new sheet that you can use. These are some dice that you've never used before, but apply to this. 
Chris has this trick for whenever players have to go to the Feywild for some reason. It's like, okay, now you play in Feng Shui. And hmm. it, it just sort of creates <laughs> a sense that whole new rules. You do not know this place, and this place does not know you. And it really helps to create that sense of being off balance and having a new experience because reality is not under the same rules. Right. And to pull it all the way back around, if you want players to make prophecies, maybe one of the ways you mechanically balance that or give it a mechanical effect is you say, all right, if you're making a prophecy, what mechanical effect does that impose on the game? Ah, that would be neat. Maybe there's a cost to you, but you get to make a sweeping change to the world. Kind of a, a little bit of a twisted sort of wish spell in some way. I like it. Not necessarily twisted in the monkey paw way where it's going to go as badly as you can imagine. Right, yeah. Not not malevolent, but it changes things and it must necessarily change you. So you're paying a bit of a price for it. Yeah. It makes me think of in, in Fate when you um you can give things an aspect or take aspects on. Maybe the way um, if you were going to have prophecy work is you can apply an aspect to a place or a setting or an, an NPC or something, but you have to take an aspect that re- speaks to that relationship, that speaks to that interchange, because this is a big deal. Yeah, you're sort of establishing something about it ahead of time is essentially what you're doing. It's sort of like the Inspectors game, Peter. Yeah. Inspectors has this mechanic where it's Ghostbusters meets reality TV, basically, so... <laughs> You have your characters going through doing supernatural pest control, and once per scene, a character can basically go to the confessional and directly address the players. You have a character talking to the players about what they're feeling and what's coming up. Boy, if I'd known he was a vampire, I'd never do the thing I'm about to do. Or it and could be the character doesn't. And that is when Dumpster started talking to me. <laughs> yeah, this is something that he did. He's got this kind of Polish ex-spy character, which is great for a Charleston, South Carolina it's pest so control company. And put upon. <laughs> it really is great. It's amazing. That sounds fantastic. You know, okay, well, what have we established? We've established that this dumpster is going to start talking and it specifically blurs the line between game story and the metagame because the character is literally addressing the players like the players are watching a reality tv show with the cut to the green screen confessional right that's neat yeah it makes me think of um ghost chasers from the supernatural show yes yes it does those guys seems like something they'd get up to oh yeah it really is but, you know, if, if you did something like that where fate is doing it explicitly, right, you're setting up an aspect for something. Yes. All you're really doing with a prophecy in the player's hands is establishing something ahead of time, especially if it's short term. Mm-hmm. Go for it. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. All right. So what else do we have about prophecy? Anything? Mm-hmm. Specific systems, maybe, although we've been addressing that throughout the episode. Yeah, I think so. I mean, fate is kind of the big obvious one. Yeah. I I did some searching around. I could not find any good systems that specifically have prophecy mechanics by that name. Me neither. I looked around too. (laughs) Yeah. So game designers take note. Yeah. There's some empty design space that could be filled. Could fill. (laughs) Yeah. It'd be fun. But you know, speaking of that, there there is one thing that I want to throw in here that just kind of comes to mind. Microscope. Have either of you played around with that at all? No, not familiar. It's a collaborative setting design tool that's kind of also an RPG. 
I've played around with earlier playtest versions of it years ago. I keep meaning to pick up the final product and just haven't. But Me too. In a, uh, in a prior gaming group, we used this and sat down and actually created a campaign that we played in. And I think that's a good place to integrate prophecies into your game world because you can kind of get some input from the players as to what kinds you want and you can lay ground rules to take certain things off the table because it's just for world building, it's not really tied to any specific use this in play kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a good way of laying kind of the groundwork for something that'll play well with uh, Fate or Call of Cthulhu or Unknown Armies or Aberon or anything else. Any setting and any rule system, you can tailor it in the construction process. Yeah, I think you hit on something there. You're giving players agency in this story and in the prophecy that's being created. It's not agency through their characters, but they have agency in the story another way. Yes. Yeah. And that's a good way to do it, especially if once it's established, it's not something that's going to change a whole lot. If it's going to be less mutable for the characters, then having the players involved as you're setting it up can be a real good way to maintain that agency and not feel completely like it is handed down to them from on high. Yeah. There's inherent bias. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Chris had something like that. Uh, he wrote a book, which I'm sure we've plugged. If we haven't plugged it, I'll plug it now. Plug it. Feed the Vampire Mythos role-playing game by Christopher Newton, Chris with a K. It is available in several places online, and it's designed specifically to be a game with vampirism, and vampirism is sort of a metaphor for addiction and the way that mm. a thing in your life can take over the rest of it. And so the, before you start out, because there's so many different kinds of vampire stories and vampire worlds or ways to interpret it, there's a thing at the beginning where you, as a gaming group, set the rules for the campaign. You decide if there's magic. You decide if there's shape-shifting. You decide how feeding works. You decide a lot of things together as a group. Because in that game, these are characters who kind of go to go to heck in a handbasket because they're vampires who are becoming more and more enmeshed in that part of their life. And you can resist it, but there's always an aspect of things going away from you. Mm-hmm. And so having that initial buy-in, because I told Chris when he was setting this up, I don't know if I would want to play this game, Chris. <laughs> it sounds like <laughs> it could be really depressing. It's like, ah, but at the beginning, you get to decide how it works, and then you can resist or not resist, and it could be really challenging. Like, okay, then I will do it. <laughs> but it was, uh, I've really liked that, and I've sort of swiped it, just those, um, those preliminary questions, I think, could be used, especially if you're going to have a, an important prophecy or an important something going on in your world to think about the questions you need to ask but with your group as you set it up. Cool. Yeah, very Ooh. cool. I'll have to check that out. It is available on Amazon Print on Demand and also Drive Through RPG for Pay What You Will. Awesome. Yeah. We got art and everything. I crocheted Ooh. dozens of tiny vampires for the Kickstarter. <laughs> it was an adventure. <laughs> That's awesome. If you'll send me the link to that, I will be sure to put a link to that in the show notes. I will do. Awesome. And on that note, I think we've about exhausted prophecy. Those are all my ideas that are good. Yeah, mine too. (laughs) All right. Well, listen, Katrina, thanks so much for joining us. It's been awesome to have you on. A lot of great stuff. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to have you on with us. And again, listeners, you really should be listening to the Gameable Disney podcast. You really, really should be. Some of the smartest RPG commentary and story commentary I've heard in a long time. Yeah. It's great stuff. Thank you so much. That is that, that makes me feel really good about this. We're coming up on, you know, the end of made Disney films and we're getting ready to start the Gameable Pixar podcast. 
I'm excited. It'll be fun. <laughs> I, I'm I'm just about vibrating with excitement for that. That's yeah. I can't wait to hear like your treatment of well, basically every Pixar film ever, actually. But I've got a few favorites that I'm especially anxious for. So yeah, and I think then it's you know, just be move good. on to Studio Ghibli, and we're good, right? We have a bonus episode on Studio Ghibli already, so we're I we know. know that it can be a whole another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like. I would basically pay good money for one on Laputa Castle in the Sky. Oh, Just saying. yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we should do that. Yeah. So go check out Gameable Disney Podcast. Again, it's uh, gameabledisneypodcast.tumblr.com or the link in our show notes. And Katrina, thank you again. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Yeah, it was great having you. And from all of us here at Saving the Game, have a good one. See you later, everybody. Have a good night. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.